Okay, in order for us to understand what the Bible says, we have to understand the perspective of those who wrote it. Does that make sense? Guys, that's the premise behind what we talked about last week. For you to really understand what your Bible says, you have to understand it from the perspective of those who wrote it. So today we're going to talk about, we're going to explain truth and the difference between the Hebrew way of looking at truth and the Greek way of looking at truth. And all last week we talked about how we come from the Greek mindset, the Western mindset, not an ancient Near East uh, Hebrew mindset. And the two are very different. I want to give you an example. If we want to understand a frog, what do we do in our Greek Western mindset? What do we do in our Greek Western world? How many of you guys remember eighth grade biology or eighth grade science, middle school science class? What did you do to the frog? Boy, some of you are really excited about that. You dissected it, okay? These are the real Greek thinkers over here. You really, <laughs> how many of you ever had to dissect anything? Quite a few of you, yeah? Okay. Um, I didn't have to do the frog. This is kind of gross. I had to do a sheep's brain and a sheep's eyeball, okay? And you do that, and you're like, here's the retina, and here's the cornea, and here's all this stuff, and you're looking for all these different things. When you do the frog, you're looking for all, you know, how many chambers are in its heart and that kind of thing, right? That's what we do in the Greek Western mind. A Hebrew understanding of what you want to, how, what, what is a frog? You go out to the pond, and you watch the frog, and you look at what it does, and you observe that, and you write it down. That's what they would do. And this has major implications for what you and I call faith. If you are a Christian, or if you are a person who is spiritual, and you're trying to figure out what faith is, there are major implications between these two worldviews, the Western worldview and the Hebrew worldview. Because we as Greeks, we're like, let's take the faith out of the pond and chop it up into little explainable little pieces, right? That's what we want to do. We want to analyze it, and we want to take it apart component by component to see how it ticks, right? An Eastern mind basically says, what does the frog do? And then what does your faith do? Don't dissect it. I'll know what this faith thing is by doing it, not just thinking about it. So don't tell me what you believe in your head, would say a good Hebrew, Show me your faith by what you do, okay? Now, neither one is wrong. I appreciate the Greek mindset, and I know you do too, right? Because there's a lot of discoveries and science and medicine that all come from the Greek way of thinking that are super beneficial, right? There are good things that come from the Greek, th the Greek way of thinking that are valuable and important. But what I'm saying is this. You can't assume the Bible was written by people who think and act and respond like you do with your 21st century Western American worldview or first world country worldview. They were radically different. The folks that wrote the scriptures in your hands were radically different than, than you and me. So the kind of thinking of just observing what the frog does, it creates a tension because it leaves many things unresolved. And I, I did this on purpose. You're going to look at your message notes. We don't normally put message notes in here. Uh, just uh, by way of those of you who are like, you didn't finish some of the notes from last week, those will be on the blog uh, for you to read this coming week. And you can look at them there. And if you're on our email list, you'll see that there. But I put these all over the place. These are some points we're going to hit today. And they're all kind of haphazard there because 
I want to create that tension for you. That's why tension is bold-faced right there in the middle. Just observing the frog and not dissecting it into all of its little components to see what they do. Just observing it. Why does it do that? Why does it go there? Why does it do this in the morning? Why does it do that in the evening? Why does it make that sound? Why does it eat that bug? Why does it not eat that thing? Why does it, how come today it actually didn't get in the water? That kind of stuff, okay? When you do that, it creates tension because you haven't taken it apart and you can't really examine the inner workings. It just leaves a lot of things unresolved. And what we want in our, in our Western modern minds is we want things resolved, right? You want answers. You want resolution, okay? I want resolution. I want, I want the answer. We want everything to be predictable. And for, or in order for it to be predictable, I have to, I have to tear it apart, okay? And see, see how it works. Why do we have to do that? Why do you want it to be predictable? Why do you want it resolved? Because you want control. We want control. We are addicted to, I need to do this. I need, to, I need to have control of this. Last week we talked about, I want you to remember this, our worldview starts with me. Your worldview starts with you. And then it moves past that, maybe. <laughs> right? In our Instagram selfie world, it might move past that. Maybe not. I don't know. But the Hebrew worldview starts outward with the group, with the community first, and then it comes back to you. You're always thinking about others first. And so the Hebrew mind doesn't want control. They have no use for it. They really don't. When you look at the narrative in the scripture, the story that's going on there, they trust in a God. They trust in a God who they think fundamentally is good and that he's in control. Therefore, they have to just trust him and his story and what he's doing in the world rather than I can't trust him. I got to trust myself and I have to have control. Okay, because he is sovereign, meaning it's going to be all right. All right. And here's the thing about resolution. If we get everything resolved, like if I take the frog apart and I look at all of its pieces and I go, okay, now I understand this and I know everything. I get it all resolved. And what do I do when I get it resolved? Right. Anybody, a teacher in the room? Teachers are, you're guilty of this. I know this because I'm a teacher. I know this because there's three retired teachers in my family, and they have all this information that's been resolved. They know all the facts. They've got it in their head, and if you bring up any subject, they're like, oh yeah, I got something to say about that, right? Because when we get something resolved and we understand it and we have control of it in our mind, we just put it in a box, and you put it on the shelf, and you're like, I'm going to pull that out later when I'm at the water cooler at work and somebody says something I'm like oh yeah yeah I know all about the frog I know about you know like did you know if you put a frog in a pot of water what happens and you heat it up anybody raise your hand yeah you put it in a box didn't you it doesn't feel it right it just gradually you can boil that thing to death and it won't even know (laughs) so what the Hebrew scriptures do is it creates tension one of the one of this is (laughs) this is we don't do anything with it once we put whatever the issue is in a box and we put it on the shelf. We don't do anything with it. We, don't, we do nothing with it. This is why, I'm going to call myself out here, this is why American preaching is so non-transformative. Because I put it all on a box for you, and you go, thank you. <laughs> you put it on the shelf, 
Yay, I know that now. I learned some Greek thing. I learned some archaeological thing. I learned some Hebrew thing. I learned a fact I didn't know. I put it in the box and I put it on my mental shelf. But one of the fundamental hermeneutics of the Hebrew mind is tension. The Bible, your Bible, if you can call it your Bible, it's the Bible, it's everyone's Bible. The Bible purposefully creates tension so that you have to go, ah, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? It creates tensions and it doesn't resolve them. And as Greek, Western-minded people, we got a problem with that. I want to give you some examples. So we're going to walk through some examples of this in Scripture in case you thought there wasn't going to be any Scripture with this. We're going to look at some specific examples. Luke chapter 15, if you turn there in your, in your Bible or you open up your app, or your device, whatever you got, you're very familiar with this one if you've been a Christian for like uh, half an hour. There's, there's the three parables in a row, right? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost prodigal son. There you go, okay. In your, in your scripture, it's called the lost son, right? Let's talk about that one with the lost son, okay? It's at the end of the story, the lost son, the prodigal son, he comes home, right? And what happens? Brother is mad. Dad's having a party. He killed the, the fatted calf, right? He's like, my, my son was, was lost and now he's found, right? And the son, the other son is like, You've never given me anything. And the dad's like, everything I've ever had is yours, right? My son was dead and now he's alive, so we have to celebrate this. And that's the end of it. You've probably heard this story so many times that you're like, okay, big deal, right? Well, you read that with, pretend you don't know the story, and you go, okay, that's how it ends. It's just, my son was dead and now he's alive. We've got to celebrate this, right? That's a terrible place to end the story, like, it should be like, the older son should be like, you're right, dad. I'm a jerk. I'll do better. It's, uh, you know, uh, he was dead. Now he's back. He's alive. You know, let's go, to, go on into the party. We, what really happens, we don't know how it actually resolved. Did the, son, did the other son leave now? Or is it just a story that Jesus is telling? But it, he, doesn't, he just kind of leaves it open-ended at the end. And the tension there that he creates Jesus purposely creates this tension so that we're forced to deal with our faith. What does faith do in this situation where the father's like, I don't care what this son has done. He is now back with the family. He's under my roof. He's come home. And then the other brother is angry about this because you've never, if you've got siblings, you've never been mad at your siblings, right? You've never thought everything was always fair, he just kind of leaves it. What happens when you put yourself into the story? What does your faith do with the situation? Because where this leads for Jesus next is it's not enough for you to acknowledge that you are supposed to love sinful people and love your enemy. Because that's what he says, right? Love sinful people. And more than that, love your enemy. And what we do is we go, mm-hmm. Yes, I give mental assent to that. I agree. But when it comes to actually practicing that, that's a whole other deal. It's not enough to give intellectual assent. Faith actually has to respond in love to real people, okay, in a real way. Your faith acting through love has to be actual. 
actual, not cerebral. It has to be actual, okay? In Hebrew teaching, there is no, one way of thinking about it is there's no, you're all familiar with Aesop's fables, right? You, there's no Aesop's fable ending where you read it and you go, and the moral of the story is, right? At the end of the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son, you might extrapolate some things, but Jesus doesn't hand it to you, tie it up in a little box with a ribbon on top and go, there you go. He wants you to work out in your own faith what, what's going on there. And it leaves all kinds of unanswered questions for us. The, the moral of the story, that actually doesn't really exist in Hebrew thought because basically they set up the story for you to discuss it and come up with several Several different applications for your life, okay? What does exist in Hebrew thinking is this. You, you see this phrase in the scripture several times. Jesus himself says it. He says, he or she who has ears, let them hear. And I think what we do in our Greek Western mind is we go, okay, I better obey whatever it is. But then we, we kind of walk out of the church after worship on Sunday and we go, okay, but what do I obey? He who... He or she who has ears, let them hear. Okay, what do I do with that? There's all kinds of these unanswered questions. And the point of that is it forces us to wrestle with the text, to wrestle with the scriptures. That's what a good Hebrew loves to do, okay? And so what they would do is what we should do. They get together in community, and we take the text, and we, we, we look at it together in small groups. We tear it up. What did he mean by this? What did the preacher mean by that on Sunday when he, when he got that out and put that and he didn't resolve it for us? You know? What would life be like if we all did that all the time? And we've got kinfolk groups, we've got Bible studies, we get together in those and we chew it up, we chew the text together. Resolution says, oh, that makes sense. Uh, thank you. Thank you for giving me that, that point. And I can walk home with that, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to put it on the shelf. Tension says, no i got to do something with this. I don't know what it is yet, but maybe I need to work it out with some other people. Maybe I need to figure it out with some other people who are doing this too. So discussion in the Hebrew world, their discussion is super, super intense. This is why you see Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes all always arguing because they're like, it's all about the discussion. It's all about how, what are we supposed to actualize from your teaching from the scriptures, Okay. They're just super intense about it. The text is life to them. It's the very words of God is how they understand it. And I think that's what we need to get back to. It's the very words of God speaking to us in your scriptures. But what are they, what are they saying to you? Jeremiah says it. He says it this way. It's a fire in my bones. The word of God is a fire in my bones. And if I don't let it out and talk about it, I'm going to burn up from the inside out. That's what the prophet Jeremiah says. So over time, the rabbis, there's all these things they're discussing about Scripture, about what God was up to in the Torah and, and all, everything that he was doing in the Exodus and that kind of stuff and the, and the law that he handed them. And they have their different schools of thought and their interpretations on it. And they write it down. They're like, well, I think this and I think that. And here's the discussions we have. And they have this Hebrew word for it called midrash. Not a rash, but a midrash. It's always right here in the middle. That's a bad joke. Um, midrash. That's their commentary 
their commentary on all these things that they're discussing with the text. It's the Hebrew teacher's explanation of those places of tension in the story. Okay, But they don't resolve them. At the end, they'll say their opinion and then they'll say, he or she who has ears, let them hear. So let's go to some more uh, examples of this. Okay, Basically, we're getting at the idea that the narrative, the overarching narrative in Scripture is the point. And that's what's on the front of your your program this morning. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4. So flip over all the way back to the beginning. Genesis, Exodus. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 4. Look it up in your device. There's this really weird type of thing that goes on here in Exodus 4. I think we're really familiar with the story, so we don't see kind of the really strange things that are in the middle of it. The background of this starts back in Exodus 1. There, it starts off by saying, now there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, right? And the Hebrew people have, from the time of Joseph, it's now the time of Moses, and the Hebrew people are now hundreds of thousands, millions, or something like that. What does the Pharaoh do? He's, he's afraid. He's like, these people have grown so numerous that if they decided to, they could overthrow our government. They could just take us out. They could wipe us off the face of the earth, and then we become the slaves to the Hebrew people. So what does he do? He says he recognizes that they're growing, and he, he is just basically evil. And he says, what? I want you to throw all of these babies in the Nile. Right? And that's the beginning of the story where Moses' mom says, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So she puts him in the basket, hoping beyond hope that he will survive. And what happens? Pharaoh's daughter picks him up out of the river, and he then becomes an adopted son in Pharaoh's household. Even though he's not Egyptian, they know when they pull him out of the river. She knows what her dad has ordered. But she picks him up and calls him her own, and he becomes part of the family of the guy who wanted to kill him in the first place. Bizarre, right? Totally bizarre. So, the story continues. I just want you to sit that for a minute. What would it be like, let's put this up on the screen, to know that you're Jewish, but be raised in the Egyptian pharaoh's house who just wiped out everybody in your generation? What would that be like? Just sit for that. Sit with that for a moment because there's a, there's a huge tension there. We've gotten so used to the story, we're like, yeah, just move on. That's a massive tension for him, for for Moses, right? So the story continues. What does Moses do? He sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew, and he basically takes out the, the Egyptian slave master and kills him, murders him. And then the next day, he sees some Hebrews fighting. He's like, hey, stop it. And what what happens then? They look back at him and they go, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you killed the other guy? Like you killed the Egyptian slave master? And then he realizes that everybody knows, and he's scared, and he runs away, right? So when he runs away, he runs across the desert to the land of Midian, and he's at this well, and there's these women trying to draw water from the well, and this other group of guys comes, and they start harassing the women, and Moses comes in as a hero, Right to save the day, and he drives off these dudes, and he then draws water for the well for the ladies, and then they go back, and there's one lady, 
Zipporah, she goes to her dad, who's kind of the leader of their tribe, and, and says, this guy saved us, okay? And she goes, this Egyptian guy saved us. The problem is, is that he's not an Egyptian, right? And, the, and that's included in the story for a reason. It's, it's setting up tension, right? The question of what would it be like to be raised in Pharaoh's household when you're a Hebrew, and then later he rescues this guy and he's called an Egyptian. The problem is that he's not an Egyptian. There's this tension. He is torn between two worlds, between two identities, between two realities. Am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? And for us, it's very, very similar. This text sets some things up for us, this tension. As America becomes further and further removed from the Christian value system, am I American or am I Christian? Am I American or am I Christian? Your temptation is to say I'm both. But if you've given your allegiance first to Jesus... Doesn't matter. Every time I do, every time I bring this kind of stuff up, by the way, just pause for a minute. A bunch of you get all straight back. He's talking about politics here a little bit. Something like what? Doesn't matter whatever party you're from. We got people in here from another country. Party, the parties don't matter. You're a Christian. You got brothers and sisters in every country on the planet. Take all that away. And what have you got? You've got Jesus. Okay? Am I an American? Am I a Christian? Am I an American? Am I a Christian? For goodness sakes, if you've given your life to Jesus and got baptized, what do you think that was about? Jesus is first. Jesus is first and foremost. Okay? The story continues. Moses marries Zipporah, you know, because she's like, dude, this guy saved me at the well and watered my sheep. What's not the love, right? So he's out in the desert one day after he marries her. You know this story. What does he come across? A burning bush. Except it's not burning up. God speaks to Moses. He's like, Moses, you're going to deliver my people. And Moses is like, no, I'm not. And God's like, yeah, you are. And Moses is like, no, I'm not. He's like, yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, and God's finally like, shut up. I'm God. You're going to do, that's worth paraphrase. You're going to do what I asked you to do. And he gives them all these signs, and Moses finally goes. And we have all these questions at this point. Or do we? I mean, like, maybe you've heard the story too many times. Like, why does he not want to go? This burning bush, God is speaking to him out of nothing. The bush is not burning up. And, the, and he says, either out of fear or out of like, wow, yeah, I want to do this because I want to align myself with this powerful, all-knowing entity being, whatever, Yahweh, why wouldn't you want it? Why is he not wanting to do what this God says, this deity says? Why, is he, why does he even think he can argue? Right? Why does he even think he can do that? Why doesn't he want to be the hero? He's basically like, Moses, boom, shazam. <laughs> You're gonna, you just got turned into this. You're a superhero. Why doesn't he just trust God? Anyway, he goes and we assume that the next thing that's going to happen on his way to Egypt is... I'm going to tell you how you're going to deal with Pharaoh when you get there, right? So he's headed off to Egypt. And this is where, go to verse 18. I'm not going to put all of these up there for you, but 
There's this weird story stuck, this little bit of it that's stuck right in the middle of Exodus 4 that does not seem to fit at all. And you guessed it, it's full of tension, all right? It says this, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And the Lord said to Moses, When you get back to Egypt, now the assumption is he's going to go on, God's going to say, Let's make some plans. So when you get there, here's what you need to do, right? Here's what you need to do. I'm going to give you this sign and this sign. Pharaoh's going to say this. You're going to say that. You're going to show him this sign when he says that, blah, blah, blah. That's the assumption, right? Well, verse 21, and the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. There's a whole lot going on there. But what, what is God doing? He's preparing Moses for the conversation that he's going to have with Pharaoh once he gets back to Egypt. And this is where it's really weird. Summarize, God has this huge fight with Moses about even going. Moses says, I'm not the guy. God says, yes, you are. Then Moses says, yes. Then God prepares Moses for the conversation he's going to have. And then you get to verse 24. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? What? First, he goes through all the effort. Back and forth, fight about it. Yes, you are. You're going to do it. Shut up and go. Now I'm going to prepare you to do your job. I'm going to give you all these signs and wonders. I'm going to give you the superpowers you need. I'm going to give you the words you need to say. All that kind of stuff. And then he's like, at this lodging place on the way, I'm going to kill you. What happened? Have you ever noticed this before? By the way, anybody ever noticed this before? No hands. Okay. You have to be a Christian for like, a, you know, five, six decades, maybe longer. No, <laughs> I don't know. This is just weird, okay? There's no like, and the moral of the story is, there's no explanation of this. There's nothing. God, you spent so much time preparing Moses, and the next verse we say is, okay, Moses, I'm going to kill you. Did we miss something? If you keep reading verse 25, then it says this, just because this is going to totally clear it up for you, okay? Put it in a box, put it on the shelf now, now that you've heard this, right? Because this is what it says next. But Zipporah cut off her, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Like you do. What the heck? Okay? What? And there's all kinds of awesome interpretations here about what this is all about. Seriously. No, not seriously. I have no idea. Seriously. Russ? Retired pastor, you got any idea? No, you don't know. No, he's looking at me like, <laughs> don't call on me. Okay, what in the world? What does this mean? And how, how does cutting off the foreskins of his son and putting, <laughs> how does that make God relent? And is this some like prescribed thing back earlier in the Bible? Like, this is what you do if God's about to kill you. Okay, no, none of that is in there. What's the tension though? Like, we're, if you look at it a little longer and you say that the narrative is the point, I would say there's a whole lot of things going on in this story. But why is this one put in there? I think one of the things that's very important for us to recognize is this. It's about the narrative. 
The narrative is the point. If it's a story, and it's the story that God is telling through Moses, what's the thing that Moses starts off with from the very beginning? He's got this tension. He's a Hebrew growing up in Pharaoh's household as an Egyptian. Am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? And Zipporah, who's a Midianite, seems to get it before him and says, there's this thing you Hebrews do that if you're going to be in covenant with that God, Yahweh, all your males do this. The question is, why has Moses not done this yet? Seriously, burning bush. This God says you're part... I'm the God of your forefathers, meaning Hebrews, right? Joseph, Abraham, all of that. His wife even calls him Egyptian at the well, but he's not. God says, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of bondage. But we're going to be real clear here about what covenant you're a part of, about what family you're a part of, about where your identity lies. We're going to be real clear. There's no ambiguity anymore. Stop doing this. Am I this or am I this? Am I this or am I this? And God's like, you know who you are because I gave you your identity and I'm telling you who you are. What I say goes because I'm the God of the universe. And if you're not willing to be clear about that, Moses... If you're like, maybe this isn't going to work out, so I'm not going to circumcise my sons, and I'm not going to go all in, and God's like, if you're not going to be clear about this with me, then I'm going to kill you, is what he says. And there's some major implications there for us today. If we're not really willing to be real, crystal clear about what covenant we're a part of. We talked about last week, all these covenants still apply to us, and then Jesus comes along and says, there's a new covenant None of the covenants get rid of the ones that came before. They just build upon them. Jesus comes along and says, there's a new covenant in my blood. And I want you to be real crystal clear about what that means for your identity as a follower of me. It means you're part of God's family. You're about the family business. God's family business comes first. Being a Christian comes first above all else. There are no propositional truths that sum everything up for us in the Hebrew Scriptures. A plus B equals C. There's nothing like that. There's no. There's the moral of the story is. We are just left to figure it out together. Together. And then the story moves on. He's in Egypt having a conversation with Aaron and Miriam. One minute it's, one minute it's foreskins and touching feet, and the next minute it's Egypt and plagues. Why is that in there? Because the narrative is trying to teach us something. We're supposed to learn something really valuable here. Who are you committed to? The story teaches us. We observe the frog in the pond and what it's doing, and it can teach us a valuable lesson. You could try and dissect that one all you want about the touching of the feet and all that and go, I don't know what that's going to tell you other than it's really creepy and messed up. Okay? Let's look at one more. Judges chapter 14. Flip over a few books to Judges chapter 14 in your Old Testament. Look it up in your app. That's even faster. Judges. There you go. 
Here's this story, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. You're all familiar with Samson, right? Okay. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. I don't even like... (laughs) If you can't laugh when you hear that, I don't know what's wrong with you because that's just... That's just messed up. I don't know. If my son came to me and said, Dad, I saw this girl in college. Now get her for me. I was like, what? <laughs> his mom and dad, and this, it doesn't get really better, actually. They're like his father, because of our first world, 21st century sensibilities. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives? Who's your cuz? <laughs> or something like that. You know, this is way back then. Again, you can't, again, context time in history. What's going on here, right? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, why do they say that? They're saying that because earlier in the narrative, God says, now you're going to go into this land with these people, and he's going to say, and he says to them, you're going to be tempted to intermarry, and I don't want you to intermarry. Don't do it. Don't marry someone who's not from your people. So he makes this rule. In fact, he makes a law And you can do the Greek Western thing and try to slice and dice and analyze all of that. But that's not the point. That's a whole other sermon. But he basically says, don't intermarry with these people. Don't do it. Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife, says his mom and dad. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. In parentheses, his parents did not know this was from the Lord. Wait a minute. Wait. He made a law. He made a rule, right? God made a rule. Don't do this. Then, but they didn't know that this was from the Lord. You know? Why, does this create a problem for any of you? Maybe you're like, that's, that's so long ago, it doesn't matter. But it's like, wait, what? At a deeper level, like, does God change his mind? Can God break his own rules? And you could go kind of like, that's too hard to think about. God's just God. You could do that if you wanted. But So God made a rule, don't intermarry. And then we see Samson wants to intermarry because God put it on his heart to do so? Okay. Tension. Tension. You feel it? I don't know what to do with that exactly. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Here's what I'm going to say to you. What a rabbi would say to you. Here's your teaching. He or she who has ears, let him, let him hear. And you're like, you punk. <laughs> you're like, I like that, but I don't like that. <laughs> I like that, but I don't. It's frustrating. You want to deconstruct it. You want to develop it. You want to figure out, come on, I want to put it in a box. What are you saying? You know? Can God change his mind? God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character never changes, but apparently, I don't know. Moses is like, at one point in another story, God's like, I'm going to kill all these people. I'm going to kill all the Hebrews. And he goes, Moses goes to Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe, and says, stop it. And he gives him an argument, and God goes, okay. Can God change his mind? Tension. Tension. Okay? It's about the narrative is the point. 
And the point, the, the alternative, the, the following point after that is to get in community and discuss these things. And there's a further point, a reason for that. Have a spiritual community to wrestle with the text. It's really important for you guys to recognize this because there's all these rules all over the Torah in the Old Testament where God gave both, both kind of rules, like one for this and one for this, and it makes, you impo- it makes it impossible for you to do both of those rules perfectly. But our Greek Western mind is like, no, it's got to be one or the other. There's got to be something that I'm missing. That I, It's got to be this. It's got to be that, right? Here's, here's the other example. I put this scripture on the front of your, of your program, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. In this section, they're, they're asking Jesus, in this particular section of the text, what's the most important commandment, right? Actually, no, I'm, I'm, skipping, I'm skipping ahead. Well, there, let me give you this example first, and then we'll get to that one. We can leave that up there. In the Old Testament, there's this command that God gives in the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath, right? Out of the 600 other some odd laws that he gives beyond the, t- the ten that you know about, there's all these other laws. He says this other law, hey, if your neighbor's donkey is stuck in a ditch, you're like, where's he going with this? If your neighbor's donkey is stuck in a ditch, go help him get it out, right? It's a law, right? That's basically like if your neighbor, if your Christian brother or sister is stuck on the side of the road and their car is broken, go get them. (laughs) Go call AAA for them if they don't have it. Help them out. If they're stuck over there, one of you go get them over there. The other of you go pick up their kids from school, right? That's what, that, what these two commands say. Don't work on the Sabbath. And the other law says, go help your neighbor with his donkey that's stuck in a ditch, right? You can't get the plow out, out of the ditch, right? Now, what do you do if your neighbor's donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath? What do you do? Because you're, you're, you are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you may not do any work, but I got another law over here that says, get your neighbor's donkey out of the ditch, right? This is why when Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they're picking grain off the top of the stalks and they're chewing on it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are like, heretic, you're going to burn. Yeah? Pitchforks, get them out. You're evil. You ate some cereal. <laughs> okay? Yeah, there's this tension that leads to all kinds of questions. In the rabbinic world, they would give their midrash. There was, just before Jesus' time, there were two really famous rabbis. One's name was Shammai. The other's name was uh, Hillel. All of them would say this question that was asked of Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, right? Hillel says, Hillel says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one, he says, is love your neighbor as yourself. Shammai says the first commandment is love your Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So they agree on that one, right? And he says the second greatest commandment is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We already talked about last week, Jesus takes the... Which one does Jesus line up with, by the way? For the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus 
Jesus subscribes to Hillel's school of thought, love your neighbor as yourself. And he takes it further and he goes, that a new command I give you, remember? We talked about this last week. He says, guess what? It's actually not good enough for you to love your neighbor as yourself. At the end of his time, he says, I want you to love others like I love you. Pin drop. Because he died for them. And he says that to them. So Hillel and Shammai, they agree on the first commandment, but they don't agree on the second. Hillel says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Shammai says, remember the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant that was given. And Jesus sides with Hillel. So I want you to recognize there's this tension. There's this tension there. to honor the Sabbath. And that's what's going on in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, is that question. What's, what's the greatest commandment? One of the beauties, the ideas that's folded into this is the fact that the narrative is the point. The Hebrew thought does not state truth propositionally and resolve it and put it in a box and put it on the shelf. The reason why we have these tensions is that we come together as a community and we begin to discuss it. The tension, the the the, I don't know, I think this, I don't know, I think this. What If I think that, how could you possibly think that? And it's okay to have a conversation. The point of the tension is that we are forced to press into one another. Because Jesus, because God thinks that's a beautiful thing. When we're pressed in to one another to be the people that he wants us to be. There's a larger narrative that's going on. How does my story fit into that story? Have a real conversation with a real person about something real. Look them in the eyeballs and have a chat. It's a really amazing thing. You know, it's kind of, we think it's kind of weird, especially living in an introverted city like Seattle. Jesus says this weird thing about where two or three people are gathered in my name. I'm there. Something like that. I'm going to have the band come up. And we're, going to, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to leave the tension there. We're going to come to this table because if there's any tension that's going to be resolved, it is only resolved in and through the person of Jesus and what He has done for us. In and through Himself. Out of all of these tensions and the things, the questions that can come up when we look at scriptures and look at it for what they say, and and it's not all wrapped up in a nice little bow, a good Hebrew will always look at everything, everything in the scriptures through a particular lens. And that particular lens is Genesis chapter 1. What happens in Genesis chapter 1? God creates a world. And he populates it with good things, plants, and animals, and water, and land, and beautiful, beautiful horizons, and sunsets, and people. And he calls it all good. And when he gets to us, and this is the lens that a good Hebrew will look at everything in Scripture through. When he gets to us, he says, you're really good. The word in Hebrew there is, it's like he's like, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and I call that good, and I get it. And he creates us. And he goes, perfect. Perfect. He created you. 
And he says, perfect. So whatever tension comes later, whatever tension is in your life, where you feel divided and you don't know where your identity lies, remember the lens that, the lens that he's looking at you through. He looks at you and he says, you're perfect. You are really, really good. There is no mistake in you. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not messed up. And that's the good news. So whatever you see in any of these passages, Judges 14, Exodus 4, you see all of those passages through the lens of Genesis 1 because that is where the story begins. It's good. It's a good story. He says you're perfect. It's been concretely and firmly established that we have a good God who wants good things for the world, who created you good and full of potential. And yet, our rebellion gets in the way and sin has a place in the conversation. But you are not evil and you are not bad and you are not gross and you are not messed up. That's not how God sees you. He says, I have created you full of potential. I have redeemed you and I want you to live into your potential. And that story is always unfolding and that is the point. So as you come to the table today, I want you to notice that Jesus is inviting you into this story. And there may be tension in the story because Jesus doesn't want you to be comfortable. His business in the world is the renewal of all things. And that means we have to go to things that are broken in ourselves and in others and in our world, and we have to work with Him to renew those things. That is the business that we are about. So that's not comfortable. But in His story, He says this is who you are. And once you believe who He says you are, you can live into that, and you can put your faith into action. And that's the question. What does your faith look like for you when you come to this table today? In your life, it's not, what do I have to know? What do I have to know to have faith? That's not what it is. It's, what does your life look like when you live out your faith? Another way of saying that is, when you come to this table, ask yourself this question as we have this time of meditation. Is Jesus on the throne of your heart? Is he still on the throne of your heart? Is the good God who created a good world, who calls you, he names you perfect, is he still on the throne of your heart? 